Greetings and salutations, Device Nation, your home for the greatest show on earth. And we know that show is Medical Device Sales, with 114 cubic inches of ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of V-Rod Muscle in times of the Honda Hobbit. And these metaphors can only mean one thing. It is the fall bike rally here in Myrtle Beach. It's the most wonderful time of the year. My wife and I have a standing date this time every year, taking the truck out on the side of the road, get some junky food, and just watch the amazing procession of artwork on wheels going through this town. Uh, Bike Week originally started in 1940, a bunch of motorcycle enthusiasts getting together for a hot dog cookout, and then it turned into the fall rally as a waypoint to the Daytona Biketoberfest. So just a lot of fun. If you ever get a chance, uh, you got to come down and check it out. So I hope you are having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I certainly did. Today, you're going to want to hang around as we go for a ride on a completely different kind of bike, the one that you actually lose weight riding as opposed to, well, never mind. Uh, we're going to go for a ride with Dr. Keith Barrent, a real icon in the ASC, uni, DA, entrepreneurial research space, on and on and on. And just like riding in South Carolina, you're not going to need a helmet. I walked into the OR lounge the other day, and some nurses were singing the theme song from that show in the 80s, The Love Boat. I was not able to get that song out of my head for days. This phenomenon is called an earworm, sometimes known as a brainworm, stuck song syndrome, involuntary musical imagery. I don't care what you call it. The long and short of it is I was stuck listening to the love boat when I woke up, when I went to bed at night in surgery. It was just out of control. So today I'm going to give you an earworm straight from one of my favorite childhood TV shows, Sesame Street. You're welcome. That's quite a gem of an earworm, isn't it? Uh, I know that's going to be so annoying this time tomorrow, but it's going to be worth it. Stop and think. Yeah. Two very important words related to our topic today and our continuing series on character. Got a few stories to tell you, and then we're going to bring it all together. I have literally driven thousands of miles along these backcountry roads throughout North Carolina. And you know the bumper sticker that says, I break for unicorns, I break for this, I break for that. Well, true confession, I break for turtles. If I see a box turtle coming across the road, and I've even taken my life into my own hands and tried to save an errant snapping turtle, uh, he was not happy about that at all. But I am a turtle rescuer, just cannot bear to see an F-250 make an absolute pancake out of these beautiful creatures. So one particular day, I saw this box turtle crossing the road. Nobody in sight behind me, in front of me. I thought, okay, I'll help this guy out before something terrible happens. So I swing open the door, get out of the car, head confidently towards the turtle. So excited. What a good person I am. And out of nowhere, a truck comes from behind me, swings wide to avoid my car. And all I could do was watch in horror as me being on the side of the road put his tire in the exact track of that turtle so desperately trying to make it across the road. All I could do was just look up towards the heavens and just scream, no, as he got turned into a pancake right in front of me. Absolutely one of the worst days uh, as a turtle rescuer I've ever had. Surgical Tech was telling me this story uh, that happened to him back home. A certain surgeon who had quite the uh, appetite for 
adult beverages, came into surgery on a Saturday morning, wasn't the most clear-eyed, clear-headed individual in the world. So the surgical tech said, hey, doc, why don't you just let me do the troke nail today? Surgeon said, fine, sat down in the corner and watched her do the most absolutely perfect troke nail in the history of troke nails, at least once done by a scrub tech. Everything went fine until the anesthetist turned her in. She showed up for work on Monday and was promptly marched out by security having lost her job. So last story, I'm listening to a PA talk to another rep, and it's about another rep that whenever this PA saw him in the hall, it was like, hey, can you guys use my blah, 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 blah. And he was saying how it was starting to annoy the surgeon because this particular rep was doing it to him as well. Evidently, this COVID-sized hole or pressure from up above was causing him to just turn every interaction into a closing opportunity. And it was really annoying everybody and sending them the opposite way, not wanting to do any business with him. What do all of these stories have in common? Yes, it's stop and think. Yeah. If there's one sniper that takes out so many reps, it's doing the wrong thing for the right reason. I don't run into a lot of people that do the wrong thing for the wrong reason regularly, Uh, not in medical device. There's a lot of great people that do this job, but there are a lot of situations where we do the absolute wrong thing but it's for all the right reasons. And that's where we've got to stop and think. I had the right reasons to save that turtle, but it was the wrong thing to do in a curve. Getting myself potentially run over and turned into a pancake to save a turtle, not the right thing to do. Uh, That scrub tech doing a troke nail, I'm sure that in her mind, that was the best possible situation for that patient. She knew the operation inside and out and probably did a phenomenal job. But you know what? It was the wrong thing to do. And anesthesia was very well aware of that. And my friend who turns every social interaction into an opportunity to close, whether he's getting pressure from within, without, I have no idea. He could have all the right reasons to do what he's doing, but it's the wrong thing to do. And in fact, it's turning people against him, unfortunately. So how can we sum this up as a character trait? Because we've been talking about that on Device Nation. And here's your word for the day. Orthopedic people will love this. It's called constrained. What does that word mean? To keep within certain limits. So as we stop and think... In every circumstance, when somebody looks to us to do something for them, or we're thinking, hey, I can do this to help so-and-so, we need a level of constraint to keep ourselves within certain limits. Stop. Think about it. What's the ramifications if this doesn't go the way that I think it's going to go? Or can somebody use this information and turn around and use it against me or in a way that could harm me? Does it come within my scope of service as a device rep in this operating room? Could an attorney put me on the witness stand and question why I did something and leave me speechless? This is the stop and think aspect of this job because there's so many awesome people in this field that look for opportunities to help other people. That's what we do. We're already there when it comes to doing things for the right reason. But what we've really got to dial in is, is it the right thing to do or is it the wrong thing to do and have a level of constraint in every 
said decision. Stop and think indeed. Oh, now that song stuck in my head. Well, this interview is going to be stuck in your head because there's just some amazing pearls that came out of our conversation today with someone that I just consider a real celebrity in the joint reconstruction space, and that is Dr. Keith Barron, one of the preeminent uni surgeons in the world, and has really pioneered the whole ASC experience. So I am honored and humbled to have him on the show, and I know we're all going to get a lot out of it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Keith Barron. Thank you. Dr. Barron, I am so thankful to have you on the show. You have an incredible body of work over your 23 years in medicine, and I can't wait to ask you about your research, ASCs, UNIs, rehab protocols. But first, let's go back to Upper Arlington High School. How did you end up in medicine and why orthopedics? Interestingly, uh, you know, I, I grew up and born and raised in central Ohio. My, my mom's from central Ohio, and my grandfather was a pediatrician here in town. I also taught at Ohio State, and my grandmother was the first female president of the student body at Ohio State and actually gave Jesse Owens a key to the city uh, when he came back from the Olympics at the track at Ohio State um, at, when she was uh, student body president. So we, we've got big ties to Columbus. I grew up in Upper Arlington, which is one of the suburbs. It's actually on the exact opposite side of town from where I live and work now, which is New Albany. When we came back up to to take the opportunity to work with Dr. Lombardi and Dr. Mallory, uh, we looked for places to live around town and and thankfully settled in New Albany because it's just a, a spectacular community and and uh, a, a very short commute to work. So that's kind of how we ended up here. What uh, what steered you towards Duke? Uh, so and interestingly, you know, as you know, my brother Mike is a, is a hip and knee surgeon in Indianapolis. Mike went to medical school there. He's he's four years ahead of me in uh, age and five years ahead of me in training. And so I was at a small school, Florida Southern College, which, is, you know, is the Harvard of the South, and needed some opportunity to get some experience, do some research, and and kind of expand my my resume a little bit. And so Mike was able to introduce me to Dr. David Saviston, who's the chairman of, of surgery and performed the first uh, coronary artery bypass grafting surgery. Um, and Dr. Saviston, um, I, I was introduced to Dr. Saviston and got a job working in the lab for the summers uh, during college. And then actually took a year off uh, before medical school and worked in a lab with uh, for Dr. Saviston. And so just my interest in Duke, you know, fell in love with the place. Everyone that I met was just great. I had a lot of friends that I met doing research that were either in med school or residency that then, you know, I went on to follow them uh, through med school and residency. And, and it was a, a great opportunity. 99.9% of the opportunity was given to me by Dr. David Saviston and, uh, I'm super grateful for that. You received so many research awards, I noticed, at Duke. Is that just something that you're just good at or you enjoy it or a little bit of both? Probably not to be braggish. It's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. You know, Duke, the curriculum at Duke Med School is a little bit different than most. Um, you actually spend almost a year. It's it's eight to 10 months, depending on the, the, the program you take doing clinical research and it's protected uh, research time. So you, you, don't, you don't have any other clinical responsibilities, which was great. And that, you know, I, I did the research during the summers and then for a year before uh, medical school, and then was able to continue that, that uh, push towards research when I worked for uh, Sean Scully, who is an orthopedic uh, oncologist uh, in the lab and took some of the things that I had learned from uh, Dr. Kim Lyerly's lab, where we were doing more virology and cancer research and applied that to the oncology uh, orthopedic space. And then, you know, just 
found that I was pretty decent at, uh, at, at writing and, and getting the message out and doing abstracts. And, and so continued that uh, as part of my residency and, and obviously as part of my career in orthopedics. I have heard the Barron brothers over so many years of my career, and it's not every day you find siblings in the same profession. Did one pull the other or was it both of you going the, the same direction? No, absolutely. Uh, Mike pulled me towards medicine. I think we've always had a, a, a bend towards medicine um, with our grandfather who, who was a pediatrician. But I, so definitely, I followed Mike's uh, footsteps for sure uh, into medicine. I initially wanted to be a transplant surgeon. I had read uh, a book called The Puzzle People uh, that was very intriguing. And I wanted to be a, a transplant surgeon right up until I figured out what that meant, um, <laughs> which was uh, really not great hours. Uh, you're really helping people, but those people are sick. Um, you know, I found that my desire for immediate gratification and to make people better and to it, probably the, the most focused area that you can do that is in orthopedics and specifically in joint replacement. Uh, you still get to do the big operations, but you definitely get that instant feedback of, of people being better and getting better. And so I, I quickly steered away from transplant to looking at orthopedic oncology, as I mentioned, um, with one of my mentors, uh, Sean Scully. And then same thing, you know, I, I talked with uh, another one of my mentors, Dr. Harrelson, who's at Duke, and said, you know, how do you do this when you get a kid with osteosarc or, you know, somebody that's got a chondrosarc that they may not survive? And he said, you know, you do it because people do survive. And again, more of the immediate gratification, wanting to talk more about can I run versus am I going to die? Uh, I, I went towards total joints, as did my brother. And so I, I think I would say he's been a role model for me, both through education and training and, and also in career. And uh, and so we both ended up in the in the same in the same thing. Not really an orthopedic story, but can you share the story with me about uh, a 12-course dinner that you went to with your brother? I've, I've heard bits and pieces of the story, and it was just hilarious. I believe the story you're talking about is Mike and I went. There was The Knee Society meeting was in uh, San Francisco, and I was on the computer looking at these American Express jaunts or whatever they're called, and, and they had an offer for uh, – how X number of dollars to go and have a private dinner with Thomas Keller at the French laundry in, in Napa. And it happened to be literally the Tuesday before we had to be in San Francisco on Wednesday for the Knee Society meeting. So I called Mike and I said, Hey, you know, let's go out and ride our bikes for a day or two. And we'll go to this dinner, French laundry wine pairing with, uh, with diamond Creek. And so we went out on Monday, we rode all Monday afternoon. We rode all day, Tuesday. Uh, we get all dressed up and go to this dinner and it's a private dinner. Actually, spectacular. I think there were five tables of 10 people. Thomas Keller was there. Uh, Boots from uh, Diamond Creek was there. Who's the, the founder's wife. Who's, you know, probably in her eighties and nineties and her son who runs the, the winery and uh, the vineyard. And uh, we had a spectacular time and probably, probably a, a glass or two of wine was, was consumed. And about halfway through the dinner, I say something about, Oh, my brother said this. And the lady across the table who we didn't know uh, said, who's your brother? And I said, well, this is my brother. And everyone at the table started dying laughing because they thought we were married to each other. <laughs> you know, our, our mannerisms are similar. We don't look a lot alike, um, but our mannerisms are similar. Similar. We both wear the same uh, very inexpensive gold uh, wedding band that we got at the same jeweler in, in Chapel Hill. You know, we were talking about staying at this very romantic hotel and riding our bikes all day. And so that was uh, in in. Uh, the other eight people at our table, all eight of them thought that we were married to each other. So it was, uh, it was, uh, we, 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 if we'd have known ahead of time, we could have played it up a little bit more, but, um, 
It was pretty That's funny. Awesome. Uh, you went on to complete a fellowship in adult reconstruction, hip and knee, with Dr. Mallory and Lombardi. Uh, what was it like working with these giants? So Dr. Mallory had had stopped operating, uh, but was still seeing patients in the clinic, which was which was something. That's that's something that anybody, any surgeon in particular, but orthopedic surgeon that's been in that position, uh, could easily tell you that's that's a tough position to be in because because you know he his indications for someone needing surgery might be different than yours, but he's already told them they need surgery and that the younger guy's going to do it. It's a uh, it's a unique position, but you, you did get to learn. I did have the just incredibly great opportunity to to be with him in the clinic and, and watch him with patients and 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 had the the unique opportunity to follow up a huge number thousands of his patients over the last whatever 19, 18 19 years or whatever it's been and I, I mean I'm truly grateful and, and feel incredibly blessed to have been able to come in and and help you know, continue his practice and continue his legacy at, at JIS orthopedics and you know, joint implant surgeons when I got here. And so that was, that was great. And he was a great mentor to me just from a, a life standpoint. I remember going to the Columbus club, which is a little private dining area, downtown Columbus with he and his wife, uh, right when we got here and they were just, they were just so generous and and so kind and very Christian man, very, very faith-based. And uh, it was, he was just wonderful to, to have the time that I did get to spend with him in the clinic. Uh, and outside the clinic, just personally between he and I, Dr. Lombardi, obviously he's, uh, he, he's the man who needs no introduction, uh, incredible mentor, incredibly close friend of mine. You know, I've, I've said to my, you know, my dad always said that the secret to success is to work harder than the guy you work for. Well, I found that to be an impossibility at this point. And so, um, he's just, he's such a, such a tremendous surgeon and role model and clinician and scientist and teacher, and just incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have been given the opportunity to to train with him and then become a partner with him. He's still to this day is, you know, my mentor and my, my best friend. And it's uh it's really, really great experience to particularly have trained with him and then uh, now train uh, fellows with him and, and uh, continue on in that relationship. It's just been, you know, it's, it's something that, this this opportunity to join JIS was was really a, I, I'll, I'll tell you the, the story quickly. The so I had I had it was before the match, and so I had agreed to do a fellowship at, at Rush uh, Presbyterian. I then got a call from in the OR, uh, my chief year at Duke, from my wife who never called in the OR and said, you need to call Dr. Ritter, who was my brother's uh, senior partner and mentor. And, and he needs to talk to you. And I said, Oh geez, what's going on? And so I, I scrubbed out of the hip that I was doing with Dr. Urbanic and called my wife and she said, yeah, Merrill Ritter called and he said, he needs to talk to you right away. And you know, right away for Merrill is, you know, who knows what he's up to. And so uh, I called him and he said, yeah, the, there's a guy in, in, in Columbus named Mabardi who needs some help? He, uh, Mallory's, Mallory's retiring and, and he, he needs, he needs help. He needs a partner. And I, you know, he, we talked with a friend of a friend and practice manager and I recommended you and you need to call this guy right away. And so that's when I called Lombardi and funny, I came up to, to visit with him an interview on a Friday for a job for when I finished my fellowship, scrubbed all day with him, operated all day with him at the end of the day. He's like, all right, see you later. And I said, well, I'm, I'm here for the job. And he said, oh, oh, oh. Cause he was having so many visitors at that time for Biomed he didn't know that I was there interviewing for the job. And so, uh, we went, we went out to, I went over to their home for dinner and, and, you know, that just was the start of a, of a great friendship and a great partnership and a great relationship, but oh, that definitely to, to Merrill Ritter. And so then I had to back out of my fellowship at, at rush and, and that, you know, I, I called and talked with Aaron Rosenberg about it and Adolf talked to Aaron Rosenberg about it and, and some of the other partners. And 
and we finally got that, uh, that that's finally all behind us and, and they're great, great friends and, and incredibly respected colleagues there at, at Rush. And, and it's worked out just unbelievably fortunate to have been able to do my fellowship in and join this practice. So you've had a huge milestone at JIS recently, uh, your 10,000th outpatient joint replacement. Uh, you have to be excited about that. Yeah, it, it is. It is uh, incredibly exciting. You know, we're we believe that to be the most outpatient total joints that have been done at a freestanding ambulatory surgery center, uh, you know, anywhere on the globe. Um, I know, you know, as you well know, Rich Berger's been doing outpatient joints for a long, long time and has done 10,000 plus. But most of those initially were at a hospital where you've got a little bit of that safety netting underneath you in terms of keeping someone overnight and who can go home and who can stay. And we uh, we partnered with Surge Center Development in 2013 and, and developed our own uh, physician-owned, physician-run, freestanding ambulatory surgery center. Um, and uh, it, it's been a, you know, we, you know, we designed it in, in 2013. You can imagine seven seven years ago, um, not really. There wasn't a lot of outpatient joint replacements being done. I mean, Rich Berger was doing some, and, and a handful, you know, Mark Hartsberg um, were doing some our hearts band. And, uh, you know, we, so we really didn't know, I won't say we didn't know what we were doing. We just didn't know what we didn't know. And, uh, we said, we're going to ramp up slowly. We're going to start slow. And, and of course the first day, Dr. Lombardi did eight and, uh, we thought everyone was going to have to stay overnight, you know, especially if they're done in the afternoon. And, and, you know, the first year, about 4% of people stayed overnight. And then that number has gone down to where it's, it's incredibly rare for people to stay overnight. And so partnering with surge center development, um, in, in building, managing, running this, uh, this facility, white fence surgical suites has been, it's been incredible. And, uh, it's, it's so liberating. I work at an incredibly good hospital. You know, it's, it was physician owned orthopedic specialty hospitals purchased by a local hospital group. And it's a great place to work, but boy, it's nothing like owning and managing and running your own center. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't work for the center, you know, I'm not an employee of the, of the center, but I am on the board of managers and, with working with surge center development, we get daily reports, every penny in, every penny out, every operation that was done. We get weekly reports. We get monthly, uh, end of monthly reports with full transparency of, of expenses. And, and it's just getting to look at that side of the business. Again, I don't work for them, but I, I'm a manager. It, it has just been awesome. And then the care of the patients being ultimately responsible for the care of the patients, having, having both the, the responsibility, but also the the accountability to each and every patient that they're being taken to the facility in their best interest. They don't have to go to a hospital. And then you throw that in, you know, in what we're dealing with today and patients just don't want to go to a hospital. You know, Medicare total knees are able to be done at the freestanding center now, January 1, Medicare total hips. And so it's just been a, an incredible experience to get this thing up and rolling. And, and we reached the 10,000 mark uh, last month and it's just uh, it's super super rewarding to see that and the, the the care and the quality of the patients and the outcomes and the satisfaction is is like nothing we've seen at the at the hospitals. You know, a lot of programs around the country when they talk about cutting costs, their their Pavlovian response is the implant. But I imagine that you guys have found a lot of other uh, avenues in that whole process to bring costs down and make it uh, make it feasible. Anything in particular jump out at you on that end? It's everything. It's not. It's not. It's not one thing. Yes, you you don't want to get broke by the implant cost and. 
you know, we've got a, a incredible relationship with, with the vendors that we use at, at White Fence where, you know, we're, we're doing a big, you know, we've done 10,000 of them. We're doing a big volume. You know, 10,000 in seven years, you can do the math. I mean, we do well over 1,000 a year. Um, that number's only increasing. They're aware and we're aware of the constraints of, of cost, uh, particularly when it comes to the, the Medicare joint replacements. And we can develop a great relationship that's a win-win with, with implant vendors, with medications. You know, I, I'll give you the example. When we first started, we were very concerned with pain control. And, and so we did blocks and we used a, a liposomal uh, bupivacaine. And we quickly found that there wasn't a huge benefit in using both of those. So do you use the liposomal bupivacaine or do you do the block? Well, the block, there's a separate facility fee for doing the block in addition to the anesthesia charge. So at the end of the day, you get, you can get paid a little bit of money for doing a block or lose a little bit of money using an equivalent product. And so we elected to stop doing that and just do the blocks and a pericapsular injection, but not with the, the more expensive medication. Recently, because Medicare very wisely has a code with which they'll pay for liposomal bupivacaine, we use the liposomal bupivacaine in patients, uh, in Medicare patients, for example, because we know that our study showed that it's not necessarily additive or synergistic with the block, but it's not any worse than the regular non-liposomal block. And so why not use it as long as it's reimbursed? That's just one example of areas where we look at, man- I wouldn't say cost cutting, but managing expenses. We'll go all the way down to finding a, a you know an LMA that's a dollar less expensive than another LMA. Well, you do a thousand joints in 2,000 other cases or 3,000 other cases, you save several thousand dollars per each one of those choices. So it, yes, the biggest chunk is the implant, but you can only beat the implant price down so far and expect to have service, instruments, inventory a relationship that that continues with that same implant manufacturer. So I agree with you that you have to have a good relationship with them and it's the largest chunk of the cost. But if you can manage the other costs, you don't have to beat down the vendors to get the cheapest parts because maybe you don't want the cheapest, you want the best value. And that value includes who's your rep, what's the service look like, what's the footprint of the implants look like in the case carts. You know, we really try to limit the number of case carts or uh, boxes that are opened down to, to one or two per case and, and a max three. And so, you know, every vendor on earth can take their instruments and boil them down to stuff that you don't need. For example, you know, you don't need to open all the left knee trials when you're doing a right knee. And that just doesn't, you know, you just got to think about things. And that we've been able to, to become much more efficient and cost effective by doing that. You were the co-developer of the Biomet Rapid Recovery Program. I believe this was released in 1997. Uh, were you thinking ASC back then or just getting your patients out of the hospital faster during that time? That program was was bringing together at the time, all of the available data and information, it was like an evidence-based program to look at, quote, rapid recovery, which was reduced length of stay, decreased post-op complications, increased compliance, you know, all the all the things that we were looking at. And, and it was really the first program of its kind uh, to bring in into account all of the factors that go into pre-op education, smoking cessation, uh, pre-op, uh, pre-op, pre-op rehab the important role of the physical therapist or digital health at this point, if, if you're doing one or the other, but back then we really weren't. And then intraoperatively, not just how fast you do an operation or how small your incision is, although that can be part of it. What you, how are you choreographing the procedure? What are you using for your local wound block? What are you using for a block or a spinal or a general? 
And then postoperatively, what are you doing for your rehabilitation? What are you doing for pain control, DVT prophylaxis, swelling management, you know, all of these things. And, and we took all of these things were out there. You know, the studies had been done. The data is there. And basically, we took the available data and distilled it down into what, what Biomet called the, the rapid recovery program with a goal at that time to reduce length of stay. And really, no one was thinking about doing these in the ambulatory surgery center at that point. So it really was length of stay, which increases throughput um, and decreases cost for the for the hospitals. So we really were positioned then, you know, whatever it was, 12 or, or 10 years later, as we watched our length of stay go down from three or four days to two days to one day to overnight to a number of hours. Geez, why, why don't we just let everybody go home the same day? Is and and that you know, so it was a very very natural progression. Uh, more of a more of an evolution than a revolution. I heard you the other night on the Park City Hip and Knee Grand Rounds. Note to my audience: please check this out. It's just great content. And I heard you speak about, I believe it was ProMap for data collection and accounts receivable. I assume you're using there at JIS. Tell me about it and how did how you guys discovered that? Yeah, big, big disclosure. I, I am a, a owner in ProMap, so I want to make sure everyone, you know, I know this isn't a CME event, but I want to make sure I don't get ripped up about <laughs> promoting something. <laughs> okay. But um, sure. So ProMap is a uh, is an Oxford University offshoot. Um, that uh, is is basically, in its simplest form, a electronic solution for taking, engaging the patient at the center or facility, engaging the patient with PROMS, then managing the interoperative, managing the operative report and the op note through a digital op note automation, capturing the implant information through digital input of the of the implant record of the um, stickers to where you then can take all of that information and download it, transport it, whatever, into whatever form you need. But what it also does is it codes the procedures for commonly performed procedures, which, you know, I do right hip, left hip, right knee, left knee, right uni, left uni, and revisions. And so, you know, I don't have to have real complex templates. You know, I, I'm fascinated by surgeons that spend 20 minutes dictating a, a total knee replacement to get every minutia in there that doesn't make any difference. You want to dictate that so that you know what part went in and how do I bill for it? Because that's the only two things that you really need to know. You, when you when you are going to do a revision on someone, you don't care if they had a medial lateral release. What you care about is what part is in there. And so you get the stickers. You don't get the op note because the op note could be wrong. And so this automates that entire process. And then as soon as you hit complete on your e-op note, it sends that already coded operative report to all of the stakeholders in the facility billing, your practice billing, referring physician if you want it to, research if you want it to, your EMR if you want it to. So wherever you choose to send it, it's completed and, and goes out. And so it, it reduced our time in AR dramatically. When you think about what has to happen when you dictate an operative report, it then has to be reviewed and coded. Then that stuff sent to wherever the, the clearinghouse is. Then it goes to billing. Then it goes to whomever. Then it might not be coded or dictated right. Then it slows you down. Um, I mean, and so your AR gets extended out, even though you're trying to be timely. Whereas when you do it all digitally, it's instantaneous. And, and the, the days in AR went down from an average of 35 days to 26 days, which is, you know, an AR for an entire practice for a year that goes down to 26 days is is pretty dramatic. It, it, it reduced our, our, our time from posting of the procedure by 6.1 days or 75%. 
and it reduced our overall billing time from nine days to three days or 68%. And so that's real money. That's real world money. And there's way fewer um, appeals that have to happen because everything's accurate. So this, this platform does all that. And then contacts, it's all forward facing. So it's branded to your facility. Uh, it has your name on it and your, your image. And then a week after surgery, they get a satisfaction survey for use with JCO and with, with AJJR. Then six months, a year and two years, they get their proms. It's, it's all forward facing. It's all very easy for the patient. It increased our response rate. You know, you got to send out these satisfaction forms to patients. And if you send them, if you send it out mechanically, like you send it by mail, paper survey, the response rate is 30%. In our version two of ProMap, which follows up with them via email that they input themselves, our response rate is 96%, which is unheard of with a survey. And so you get the good, bad, and the ugly, but you can you can address the ugly, right? And you don't want to just hear the good and you don't want to hear only from 30% of people. So it's a it's a digital solution from start to finish, engagement, forward-facing platform with the patient, a uh, digital solution for the e-op note and management of billing and, and, and coding and collecting, and then post-operatively forward-facing uh, management of outcomes and, and satisfaction. And it's it's been really, you know, whether it's decreasing your AR or increasing your follow-up, um, it's, it's pretty good. I thought it was amazing. How can surgeons that are listening to the show uh, get more information about this platform? It's www.pro-map.com. You were one of 13 surgeons selected by Biomat to train surgeons on the Oxford knee. And the last time I checked, you performed more Oxford unis than any other surgeon in the entire world, which is just amazing. Uh, I'd love to hear about your history of involvement uh, in this project that started in 1976. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't Man. involved then, but um, <laughs> right. yeah, I remember getting a phone call from uh, who, who ended up being a real close friend of mine, Lance Perry, who's who's worked at, at Biomet and and was in the knee knee development side of the business, and and he said, "Hey, we're going to send a group of surgeons because." The, the Oxford has been around for, as you just said, 45 years or so in, in its evolving form. It's really remained somewhat unchanged, especially in terms of the articulation itself. They did a, an IDE study, an FDA study in the, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s. And it took until 2004 for the device to be approved by the FDA. Because of that and the, because of the type of device it was, they said, okay, we'll approve you can sell this in the United States. However, your surgeons have to undergo, any surgeon who's going to implant this has to undergo a specific training. You can tell us what the training is, and as long as we certify it, whatever. And so all of a sudden, they have the ability to sell this implant, but no one in the United States, other than the handful of surgeons that were involved in the study 10 years ago, 15 years ago, were, were certified to do the operation. I think you're right. I think there were 13 of us that um, that traveled over to, uh, to Oxford, England uh, to do a, a train-the-trainer type of thing. And, uh, I mean, I, and Mike Barron, my brother was uh, one of those as well. And, you know, we go over and, and it was awesome. The, the course was actually taught at the museum of natural history there in Oxford. We toured Hogwarts. I mean, it was, it was just a great trip, but I mean, to be one of 13 surgeons that's, uh, approved to do this procedure and to start teaching this procedure to others, it was a little bit like back in the day when you had to get a cement license to do a total hip, you know, you, you had a license to say, I'm, I'm one of the only 13 guys in the country that are able to do this you know, remarkable operation that has a, at that time, 25 year track record. And so we came back and, and I did my first one in, 
I think May or June of 2004 and um, haven't looked back. And, and really much like the Oxford folks taught me and as we teach at the Oxford courses, which we're very hopeful, the next one will be in November if, uh, if we can get all through all this other stuff in, in, uh, in Nashville. Much like they taught us, you start to understand the indications so much better by going to their course and, and learning about, I sat in the back row with my brother and laughed and made fun of him for th- saying things like, Oh, you can ignore the kneecap. Well, you know what? If you got anterior medial osteoarthritis, you can pretty much ignore the kneecap. I wouldn't ignore lateral facet disease, but any other disease in the kneecap, you can ignore it. It makes no difference in the outcomes. It makes no difference in the survivorship. You know, things like location of pain. I was always taught the one finger sign. If someone says their whole knee hurts, they're not a candidate for a uni. That's complete. It's completely inaccurate. So you learn these things, you doubt it, you come home, you try it a little bit, you push it a little bit. I went from doing 5% unis to doing 50% unis over a period of about three to four years. And it's continued right about, it bounces between 45 and 55% of my primary knee practice is, is partial knees. And so it, it, it has been a great experience, incredible experience for my practice, uh, incredible experience for my patients. And then I just love uh, going to the courses and teaching. Dr. Lombardi usually does the live surgical demonstration for him, which is great fun to, to moderate while he's operating. And uh, it, it's I, I learn something every time I go. It's uh, it's the best course that there is, regardless of if you use their device or if you even do a lot of unis. It's uh, it's the best course, most comprehensive for a single subject that I think that I think I've ever been to. Of course, being a little bit biased, but it's been a great experience, and it all started with running over to England and. Like April of two thousand and four, I've seen a lot of crossfires over the years on DA versus posterior lateral, and uh, I'm just curious where we are literature-wise on this debate. I believe the last time I checked, you've done more DAs than anybody out there in the Midwest, and would love to hear your journey with this procedure. and And like I said, where where are we now on it? Taking it from where are we now? I think that if we really, really dive into the data, there it's probably it probably makes no difference in the hands of a well-trained surgeon with equal perioperative care in equal patient populations, it probably doesn't make a huge difference whether you do a good posterior lateral or a good anterior. The one thing, at least in my community, and, and there are guys in my community that if I had to have a hip replacement and I wasn't going to go to, I would let them do a posterior on me. They're very good surgeons. They have outstanding outcomes. They have no reason to change what they're doing, but many of them will have post-op restrictions. And as I understand it, the data doesn't suggest that dislocation rates any higher. But if you're repairing the posterior capsule and repairing short external rotators, you want that to heal. And so you want to protect it by limiting range of motion, can't sleep on your side, can't cross your legs, can't sit on a toilet, so on and so forth. So I tell patients frequently, look, a well-done anterior versus a well-done posterior, there's probably not a huge difference. The one difference in our community is I do not use any post-op restrictions for, for a direct anterior. I trained at Duke and we, Tad Vale started doing kind of a small incision posterior lateral approach in my last couple of years of, of training. So that was kind of my foray into quote, minimally invasive or less invasive surgery. When I came here, Dr. Mallory and Dr. Lombardi all did all direct lateral traditional, almost a Harding type approach. Although Dr. Mallory in one of his publications called it an anterior lateral approach. It's probably not truly an anterior lateral approach. You know, anatomically, you've got posterior lateral, you've got direct lateral, which is a, like a Harding. Anterior lateral is probably more like a Watson Jones, and then a direct anterior uh, approach, which is which is what we're talking about. So when I came here, I switched and was doing all of my hip replacements through a direct lateral. So I'd been here, in, you know, three or four years in practice, and 
you know, I was doing a fair number of hips, but not a huge number. And, you know, I thought my patients were probably not recovering as quickly as some of the other surgeons at the orthopedic specialty hospital. I was intrigued by the anterior approach. Um, I did a couple of cadavers with, um, with Roger Emerson kind of thought, you know what, this, this might be, there might be something to this. So I did a couple more cadavers. Uh, I met at the Academy with, um, one of the surgeons who designed the, the quote ASI instruments for, uh, for Biomet. So in January of 2007, I found what I thought was going to be a perfect candidate for the operation, thin, but not too thin, female, long valgus neck, not a lot of deformity, bad arthritis. I told her, you know, I don't know that you know, we could get into the whole issue of eth- ethics of disclosing this, but I told her this is the first time I've ever done this. I think you're a perfect candidate for it. She agreed and was excited. Um, I explained my training and, and education. And so in January of 2007, we did our first one. I, I did it without the special fracture table um, because at the time, again, I was working in an orthopedic specialty hospital that was owned by physicians. And I, I didn't think that it was appropriate for me to say, hey, buy me a special table that I'm the only one that's going to use. And so we did it without the special table. Uh, it took us about two hours. I used uh, various devices to, at the time, no one was using, or we weren't using TXA. So I used everything I could think of to, to reduce blood loss. And she, she did great. The operation went very straightforward. And so I started uh, then uh, scheduling one anterior hip a day uh, at the hospital. And we would go through that. And then I would schedule, you know, three or four months later, schedule two and then schedule three. And then Anyone that looked like they were a reasonable candidate for it in terms of ease, I would schedule for a, a direct anterior. At the time, I was also doing uh, hip resurfacings. And so it really migrated in 07, 08, and a little bit of 09 to where if you were a big mesomorphic male, middle age, I was doing a Birmingham. And then if you were anything else, I was doing an anterior. And if you were morbidly obese, I was doing a direct lateral still. So roughly 2009, I converted over to where I was doing all of my patients through the direct anterior approach. And so as you watch the learning curve, it's kind of neat that, you know, you start out and it takes you twice as long and it's twice as hard and you have twice as much blood loss. Then that plateaus. And then you have another, you have another decrease in, in OR time blood loss. And then there's a little increase. Well, that increase is because you're increasing your degree of difficulty. Those patients that you weren't doing that you now are, take you a little longer, a little more blood loss. We didn't see any difference in complication rate. And I think that's because we were very carefully selecting them initially. Uh, but so by 2009, I've only done direct anterior approach for all primaries, literally all primaries. The only exception being if I have to take out a lot of hardware, which isn't really a primary, it's a conversion. Um, I would still do those through through uh, a direct lateral approach, but it, it's been great. I mean, my, my hip practice doubled within the first couple of years of doing anterior because I, I really think I got a jump start on it within my community and, and kind of West Mississippi or East Mississippi. And so it, it's been great. And uh, all my partners do it now uh, for all, for their approaches. There's several other guys in our community that do it and, and are great students and do a great job. And I, I hope that someday the argument will be gone, posterior versus anterior, although it's a fun debate at, uh, at CCJR and, and uh, the JAM meeting. But I think truly the science, as you asked, says well done poster, well done anterior. There's not a heck of a lot of difference. I'm not turned off by the marketing. I'm not turned off because, you know, at the end of the day, we're in business, in the business of medicine. And as long as you're not making a false claim, I think that it's perfectly appropriate to say I'm an anterior hip surgeon, come to me because I do a, a, you know, muscle sparing hip surgery, minimally invasive, whatever you want. I think to make a claim that it's better, stronger, faster, you know, I think is difficult to make at this point in time, unless you're only looking at one area of the literature. 
I was at a cadaver course down in Miami, and the surgeon that was uh, conducting the course said, if you do your exposure right in a direct anterior, you should be able to use any stem you want, that you shouldn't necessarily have to be confined to one of the short, uh, more varus-oriented stems. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, 100%. I would not choose to do a ream and brooch style stem, you know, a, a Mallory head primary or a summit or a bimetric um, I, I wouldn't choose to do that. And if you look at, you know, Mallory wrote a, a paper in geez, 2001, 2002 called Why a Taper. It was based on his scientific exhibit that he and Dr. Lombardi had at the Academy. If you look at the survivorship of titanium double or triple wedge stems, the survivorship is is incredible. And, you know, I could call those, quote, full length stems, but they're brooch only for the most part. And so if you look at Broach-only, flat-wedge, tapered titanium stems, the survivorship is incredible. You then add in the sort, I won't say newer because the design's been around for a long time, but the, the, the concept of some patients that might not be the absolute best choice, particularly osteoporotic elderly female, uh, because the, the, the risk of fracture is a little higher. So for those patients, and, and I think probably any patient, uh, a fully HA-coated, more rectangular stem with or without a collar, although the data suggests that a collar does reduce the fracture risk. So a brooch-only rectangular taper as opposed to a wedge taper is also an awesome stem for the anterior approach. And the Karai has been used for years. And in fact, when Depew uh, really jumped on this with doing it on the table, um, that was the stem that was that was recommended was to use the Karai. Some of the other vendors have come up with with other similar type implants. Again, disclosure, I, I, I'm a designer, but uh, the Avenir Complete with, with Zimmer is a, is a brooch-only rectangular HA-coated stem. I mean, you can put in any length stem. It's the technique of, yes, it's easier to do a brooch-only, but if you have to, I do revisions through the front, and I'll put in a, you know, an Arcos modular. Is it easy? No. Do you have to take the TFL down sometimes? Yes. Stem choice, I think you, as long as you're doing a brooch-only stem, you can do any stem on the market. How do surgeons that are listening to this show, y'all have built up such a, a body of knowledge, this whole process, not only in the clinical side, but the financial side. How, how do they access that? Is there an opportunity for them to come up and visit or to attend meetings or any forums where they can kind of tap into to what y'all have been able to put together? Short answer is not really. Um, it is something I think that's lacking within within healthcare, particularly in, in what we're doing, but sort of yes. And I say that because we have a program uh, that Dr. Lombardi, myself, and, and my brother Mike uh, run through our, our consulting company called HD Arthroplasty. And HD Arthroplasty is a program that's an immersive experience uh, at the surgery center to look at outpatient joint replacements. It's not truly an educational program. It's an experience where you'll bring a couple of surgeons, perhaps a, a clinical nurse or a PA, and maybe a manager, um, and come and, and spend all day with us at, at White Fence. And see exactly what, you know, actually witness the fact that this guy's had three stents and a little bit of, of sleep apnea, and he's actually going to be able to go home today. It's he's okay. He's going to make it. Where, you know, surgeons who start doing outpatient joint replacement just are scared witless that, uh, that who can they operate on? Not everyone can go to the center. Everyone can go to the center as long as they don't have an organ failing. And to come and see that and see how the patient flow goes, um, see how the OR flow goes. See the fact that we don't use any special widgets or implants. We use we just streamline the process, um, patient education, everything but the back office billing, you know, uh, collection, insurance 
contracts, things like that, that are, that are uh, confidential, everything, but that is, it's a great experience. Um, and they can you know reach out to me on my email if, if they're interested. I got an opportunity to attend the Emily Barron adult reconstruction symposium at Duke, uh, some time ago, eBars. And, uh, I'd love to know how that got started. I think y'all were up to your 12th annual meeting. We were somewhere up there, 12 or 13 or something like that. And then this COVID hit, yeah. but, um, yeah. So, um, obviously, as you said, as you mentioned, Mike and I both went to medical school and did our orthopedic training at Duke and, and just are incredibly happy and, and just want to give back to a program that, that really gave to us, you know, our, our mentors that were there, you know, that neither one of us would be where we are and, and in a position where we are and, and as successful as we are. And without our training at Duke, both in med school and residency and particularly residency and, and our affiliation with the, the Piedmont Orthopedic uh, Association, the Piedmont Orthopedic Foundation, which is kind of our alumni club for, uh, for, for Duke Orthopedics. And so also having some really close friends that are, that are there, um, that, that are on faculty there, like Mike Bolognese and Sam Wellman. We got the idea that uh, our, our mom passed away in 2001, uh, and she was a huge Duke uh, fan and supporter, uh, even beyond uh, helping with our tuitions uh, at Duke Med. And so we wanted to give back to to our Duke community and our, our Duke family. And so we started uh, eBars, which is the, the Emily Barron Adult Reconstruction Symposium. Um, it's free for residents and fellows. Um, we charge a little bitty fee for uh, surgeons to attend, and we charge a little bit bigger fee for our industry friends and partners to attend. We don't do any uh, industry funding per se, although we do uh, uh, apply for grants for uh, our live surgical dead demonstrations. So we do we do cadaver demos, um, everything from unis to, to complex revisions. Mike did a triflange a couple of years ago. And so it's a, a two-day meeting that we hold on campus at Duke at the Medical Center. It's a, a great reunion for, for our Duke friends. Um, we bring in uh, a um, visiting professor who's kind of the, the senior most uh, visiting person on the agenda. We usually, we ask them to give two keynote uh, talks one more about life uh, or research or, you know, things that things that aren't, this is how I do a total knee kind of thing. And then one about whatever recent uh, research they've been doing that's important to them. And then um, we bring in usually three more uh, faculty members with diverse backgrounds, can be academics or private practice. But uh, And then we, uh, Mike Bolognese and Sam Wellman and, and Mike Barron and I put together a, a program and uh, been very well attended. Because we don't have industry funding, um, we're able to do uh, things that we wouldn't normally be able to do, like have a big uh, wine and barbecue blowout on Friday night. And so we believe that, you know, of all the things that I'm proud of, we believe that the Friday night party at the Bolognese's house may be the largest wine and barbecue event, pig picking, wine and, and pig picking event that's, that's ever held annually. So, um, and all the attendees are invited. Um, to, to that, which is super fun because um, they get to mix and mingle and, and drink a little wine and eat a little pig with, uh, with the faculty. Uh, the Duke faculty all takes part. And we have we have wide ranging talks from, you know, the things that you want to know about primary knee and hip to stuff about bundles and um, pain control and BPCIs and all those kinds of things. So it's it's been a great way to give back. It's been incredibly popular. It's it's not entirely altruistic. Mike and I get to go down and, and see our friends and uh, have a little reunion. And it's it's been a great, great way to give back. I was first assist on a live hinge knee uh, at that meeting, and it was probably one of the more stressful things I've ever done. Uh, when they turned the cameras on, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to I knew I was just going to forget everything I've ever learned. 
but uh, it went great. What a what a great meeting. I, I am not a wine enthusiast. I know you are, and I know this has nothing to do with orthopedics, but when I hear people say uh, they're a fan of big calves, I have no idea what that even means. What what does that mean? <laughs> What's a big calf? So, well, I mean, I think it depends on what, what, your, what your taste bud's like. Um, I mean, it, uh, when people say a big calf, they're usually talking about that it's going to be, usually it's going to be a California Cabernet. It's going to be very, very oily and almost have a, a thick palate um, or a thick, uh, thick tongue. Um, and it's, it's just big. It's got a, it's got a ton of upfront flavor. It, it hits you, it hits you in the nose and hits you in the mouth when you smell it and drink it. Um, and so that would be a, a big cab as opposed to a soft Pinot Noir, uh, which is the exact opposite of, of that description. Uh, you said some glowing things about, uh, Dr. Lombardi earlier, and I know you two founded Operation Joint Implant, which would later become Operation Walk. Uh, just a phenomenal organization. How did that get started with you? So, you know, I, I saw you, you had your, your two podcasts with, uh, with uh, Larry, um, who much like Prince and Madonna, uh, and Justin, he, you know, there's <laughs> only, you only need one name for Larry in, and, right. uh, you know, Larry started operation walk, um, the, the kind of the original now operation walk Los Angeles. And through that program, kind of the disciple of that, um, Merrill Ritter and Mike, uh, started one called Operation Walk Mooresville. And in that Operation Walk, those are each independent 501c3s that provide that the travel usually to uh, South America, although they've traveled to other places, have traveled to Vietnam and India and, and Africa. Uh, but usually South America is where we were Operation Walk Mooresville would go and provide uh, hip and knee replacements for, for those in the most critical need that really can't afford it. Usually we would go to Guatemala and Nicaragua. And so I had the, the great uh, opportunity that Merrill invited me to participate. And so I started going down and uh, my dad would say, well, why are you going down there and doing that? There's got to be people here that need your help. There's got to be people in the U.S. that need your help. And so uh, we then had Dr. Lombardi join us uh, and come down. And uh, so Lombardi got home and, and said the same thing. He said, boy, you know, this is great, but there's got to be a way that we can do this in our own community. And so we started Operation Joint Implant in partnership with, with Mount Carmel Health Systems here in, in Columbus. And it's, it's, it's really important to emphasize the in order to figure out the actual need and the, not the need that, oh, I need a hip replacement, but the need in terms of do you need care that you that you can't afford and if you can't afford it why can't you afford it and so the bandwidth of folks that were really stuck in this position where they realistically can't afford health care but are working too much to afford true government assisted health care and so there's a bandwidth of people that just as an, you know might not qualify for medicaid but really can't afford to feed family do and do the kind of job they do and afford to have the type of insurance that would cover a hip replacement or a knee replacement. And so with the partnering with Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel was able to evaluate that financial situation for us and determine that, yes, you know, one example is one of my favorite ladies who, who I follow on Facebook and she follows me, her husband had lost his job. And so they, they had lost their insurance. They had enough money on their income to say you don't qualify for Medicaid, but couldn't afford to buy insurance. And, you know, in order for her to get a job, she's going to have to get her hip fixed because she can't stand. And so that's the type of people that we targeted. And Mount Carmel was able to help us with that. The other thing is we would get referrals from primary care and from Mount Carmel outreach. 
and we would plug them into this kind of financial platform that Mount Carmel was working with. And they determined that, oh, by the way, you do qualify for this subsidy. You do qualify for this government help. You do qualify to get this level of insurance. And and so, you know, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but we were identifying loads of patients that, oh, by the way, you you can't afford it, and here's how you can afford it. And, and we're helping them in that way. At the same time, then annually providing free hip and knee replacements at Mount Carmel New Albany uh, Surgical Hospital. And Adolf, um, being the, <laughs> the force of nature that he is, said, I'm, I'm as the president of the Hip Society, I'm going to make this my goal to bring this nationwide. And so that's where Opwalk USA was, was born. And so um, same thing, but we would just work with uh, our management, managing director, Olga Foley, and identify locations that were interested in this. You know, lots of folks had heard about Operation Walk going to Guatemala, and but they weren't, they don't have a big enough bandwidth to go do those types of mission trips. They want to care for the people in their community. Their hospitals want to care for the people in their community. And so we were able to sort of franchise this Operation Walk USA across the entirety of the United States. It, it's super rewarding. You know, I, I, I like to say, you know, my wife and I are, are very philanthropic. Um, I'm the past uh, chairman of the, our community foundation. Uh, I'm on the board at, our, at my alma mater. You know, I, I just love giving back to the, to those people that have, that have given so much to me and Dookie bars and, and whatnot. And there's a lot of people that are like that. And, you know, when we talk about board management and we talk about philanthropy, the things that you have are, are your time, your talent, and your treasure. And while it's really nice and, and I think important to give of all three of those things, giving of your talent when when you're when you're doing something like Op Walk is is incredibly rewarding. You know, I make donations to you know, like I said, our community foundation to support uh, various initiatives, and that's super rewarding, and I enjoy that. But boy getting to help Mrs. Jones with her bad hips so she can get back to work and get insurance. That's just the best or, or helping the people of Nicaragua that have no other way to have their horrible rheumatoid arthritis fixed. So they can, you know, we had a great story in Nicaragua. This woman hadn't walked the worst hip arthritis you could imagine only being treated with steroids. Uh, we did her hips and two or three years later, she came back to visit us at our hotel, was married, had a kid and was in college. I mean, those kinds of stories are like, I mean, I do, and I love making people better. Um, you know, we all have our favorite patients and we all have those difficult patients, but those kinds of stories, those aren't your everyday story in America. But being able to help people in America through Opwalk USA and help people in your backyard and help people in your community with your talent is a special kind of giving back, in, in my opinion. That's heartwarming stuff right there. On a side note, the Tour de France is going on. And I have done many MS-150 rides over the years. I'm the old guy on the, the Y-foil. And I always chickened out doing the century on Saturday. And I know that you did a ride that was essentially nine. Yeah, so we, um, in my community in New Albany, um, there's an organization here called Pelotonia. And Pelotonia started about 11 years ago, uh, 11 or 12 years ago now. And it was a cancer fundraiser benefiting the the Wexner um, Ohio State Medical Center Cancer Center. The premise was every dollar that you raised as a rider goes directly to cancer research. So so the, the, it's it's underwritten by very generous supporters here in our community and, and corporations within our community. And so the first year was 2009. And my wife went and did it. 
and her and, and actually Adolph Lombardi's wife uh, went and did it. And she can't, she did 50 miles. And I was so impressed. I'm like, Oh my God, you were 50 miles all in one at one time. What? Oh my God. And, uh, but she came home and, and was in tears just saying this was the most inspirational thing that she's ever done. There were people on the side of the road with poster boards saying, thank you for saving my life. Cancer sucks. Go get them. I mean, she just said it was just tremendous. And so I told her, you know what, I'm going to do it next year. And she said, well, on what? And I said, well, I'm going to go buy a bike. And so this was August of 09. And so of course I, I bought a bike. I rode it like twice and then put it away for the winter. And so in the spring of 10, I started riding. Uh, I weighed about 30, 35 pounds more than I do right now. And I said, I'm going to do the hundred, do the hundred first year. And, and I did it and, uh, sort of got hooked on the riding thing. And so the next year I committed to do the 180 over two days, uh, got in with a great group of guys, uh, here in town that are cyclists, none of them in the medical profession, except for one ophthalmologist. And it's just, it's created a whole new network of really close friends. Um, la- the, to date they've raised $220 million for cancer research at Ohio state. Um, of course, it was virtual this year, uh, but they still raised tens of millions of dollars uh, this year, and it got me into cycling. And so you're training for this, you know, two-day, 180, eventually it became a 200-mile ride over two days, and the type of people that you end up training with end up being triathletes, because who else is going to ride 100 miles on a Sunday besides somebody who's training for an Ironman or training for Pelotonia? And so I, at the time, didn't want to run and didn't like swimming, and so I would hang out with these guys and they'd then come back from an Ironman and be all, you know, wow, that was awesome. And it was so cool and whatnot. And so one night we were, I was with these guys that had gotten back from doing an Ironman and, and they basically were, you know, all chests out and bragging and, you know, what's our next big mountain to climb. And I said, I just read an article about this race across America and it's an actual race starts in San Diego at Oceanside and ends in Ocean City, Maryland. And it's a, it's a race and you can do it as an eight man relay. And they said instantly, we're all in, we're all in. I was in the fall. Uh, that whole thing fell apart. And so I, I scrambled and got a four man team together and we did race across the West, which in 2014, which is the first 900 miles of race across America. It goes from San Diego to Durango and just got hooked on this style of racing, this relay endurance insanity logistics style of racing and so we did race across the west with a four-man team in 2014 i then did uh uh, the ohio cycling challenge which is a 400 mile cycling race around ohio Uh, i did that as a two-man relay and we ended up winning that and then in 2015 and then in 16 we did an eight-man so an eight-rider team for race across america uh benefiting operation walk and so it was great um, at the end of the day, when we finished, we celebrated and I looked at a couple of the guys and I said, this was great. The logistics were horrible and we didn't get to ride enough. So it's 3,100 miles basically. And there were eight guys. And so you'd ride for four to six hours and then you were off, you're off your bike for 18 or 20 hours. So you spent a lot of time in an RV, a lot of time in a van and not a lot of time riding. And so Right after we finished and kind of the, 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 the celebration ended, we said, we're going to do this again. We're going to do it as a four-man. And so last year, uh, we did a four-man race across America benefiting Operation Walk. And that was, you know, the math is obviously, as you said, you, you got four guys riding 24 hours a day, taking turns on the bike. So you end up riding, you know, uh, six hours a day, nonstop, every, every six, every, whatever it is, every six or eight hours, you're back up. 
um, on the bike. Cause you ride as, as, as a team, I'll ride, then you ride, then I ride, then you ride. And we do that for six or eight hours. And then the next guys do it for six or eight hours or eight to 10 hours. And that was hard. Uh, <laughs> and that, you end up riding a lot. Um, but the logistics were easier with a fewer riders. Uh, we had an awesome team of crew and, and captains uh, taking care of us. And we raised some money for off walk and, and completed it in, I think, six days, 21 hours across uh, roughly 3,100 miles and 175,000 feet of climbing. And went through, I think, I think you go through 16 states and uh, it was, it was fantastic. Did you run into any guy dressed up as the devil uh, chasing you along the route? No, we didn't have that. I mean, you know, obviously there's not a lot of that this year with, uh, with the rules, with uh, the pandemic, but um, no, what we did have was uh, a big group of family and friends met us at the Bloomington rest stop. Uh, when we, when we changed riders in Bloomington, we had a couple dozen folks that we know from, from uh, Zimmer Biomet and from Indiana and the, you know, where my brother is from and where two of the other riders were from. Um, so that was great. Uh, but otherwise it was, uh, you know, you, you, when you leave, you leave every couple of minutes out of San Diego until all the teams have left and there's eight man, four man and two man teams and they all leave on the same day. There's also guys that do it by themselves, which is just complete insanity. But so you, you end up passing back and forth. Different riders will pass you or you'll pass them on the way but it's a, it's a lot more dense between California, Arizona, and Utah than it is, you know, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, where you, you might not see anybody for, for 10 hours. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting way of, of racing and a very fun way of doing things. And we're really proud. We did it under seven hours, which, uh, is then the cutoff to where you then qualify to do it individually if you want to attempt to do it. And so I, I, I showed my wife that certificate when I got it in the mail that I had qualified to do Ram solo. And she said, if you'd like to do that solo, I would love to show you the definition of solo. So <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going to do that. Great response. I, I know a lot of surgeons across the country right now that are staring at a COVID sized hole in, in the ground. Any advice to them on filling it back in right now? It varies. I mean, it's so difficult to say that because it's so different between the different areas of the country. I mean, there are places, New York that truly were hit pretty hard you know, hit really hard. Um, and, and there's places that are, that are, aren't quite back open. Um, you know, I, I think we, Ben Dom up in Chicago wrote a letter to the news, to the local paper that was all over LinkedIn, um, that I actually sent a copy of it to our Lieutenant governor during the lockdown. And, and then the governor used hip surgery as an example that they, they should, they really should not have locked down. Once we had a handle on the fact that Ohio wasn't going to run short on PPE, which was, which was probably end of March, beginning of April. And we weren't going to run short on ventilators, et cetera. We probably should have let people start having hip and knee replacements, at least at freestanding surgery centers and, and orthopedic surgery in general, because the, the, the downstream effect of you're off work anyways, you're furloughed, you're working from home. Oh, by the way, you can't have your surgery. Now you can have your surgery, but there's a backlog. So now you can't have your surgery until, oh, by the way, January, you start working in the office again or you come off furlough in October, the downstream effect of, of postponing what are not truly elective surgeries. I mean, maybe you shouldn't go get a boob job during the, the pandemic, but hit, needing a hip replacement or not being able to work, that's not elective. And so I think that it, it varies so widely depending on how their governors handled it and how the local uh, mayoral uh, uh, teams handled it, that um, you know we, we were able to start doing, quote, elective procedures without any without any restriction on May the 4th. And we quickly caught up 
we spent six weeks where the non-arthroplasty surgeons at our surgery center worked on Saturdays uh, because they require less help, less PT, you know, so we're paying less, fewer people overtime. Uh, we did that for about six weeks uh, where we were doing just joint replacements and spine uh, during the week to catch up. And now we're back to where we're kind of on our regular, regularly scheduled programming. It's really interesting. Our referrals have not caught back up yet. Our, our actual physician directed referrals, but our number of surgeries is caught up and is a little bit ahead of year to date last year. And that's because of the same thing. People are saying, if I got to get my hip fixed, I'm going to go get it done now while I'm working from home. I don't want to have to take three weeks off of work, depending on where I work and what I do, to have my hip replaced next year when I have to go into the office or when I have to go back to the factory. So there's been a huge push with that. I think the ability for us to do Medicare needs at the surgery center has been very beneficial because patients do not want to go to the hospital, even though it's an awesome hospital. They don't want to go there for fear. And, you know, to be as apolitical as I can be, I hope that this whole thing, the fear mongering of the media subsides somewhat, if not before, at least on on November 4th, because this is all driven by fear and there's no science in any decisions that are being made. I mean, shit, Ohio, the kids are not in school, but they can play sports. Yet all of the colleges are in person and they don't, and the big Ten's not playing football. So like, how does that make any sense? Who made that decision? You know, I mean, it's, it's, and you know, I've got a, one of my partners, a spine surgeon, he's got a, I think Gavin's 11 or something. I mean, his mom, his wife and Gavin's mom has to, has to help him do his schoolwork every day on the computer. How is that reasonable? You know, I mean, it just, it blows me away. And so I, unfortunately, I don't have the answer other than I hope that things calm down, but if the media doesn't quit reporting the daily death rate instead of how well we're doing, um, I don't know that it's going to end anytime soon. So any advice as we close up shop here, any advice to the sales reps that listen to the show and you know, you've had a lot of reps in and out of your rooms over the years. Uh, what distinguishes uh, a great rep from a rep? I think that above all else, personality and how they handle the times when things aren't going exactly right. You know, you, you could be a hero or a zero if you're prepared for when things aren't going right and you have a good answer. You take responsibility if it's if it is something that you've done. And, and I think that's that's that's. I want to call it personality, but that's who you are as a person, regardless of what business you're in. I think that's how, how it goes. I think that then having, having something that's going to help me is, is also very beneficial knowing what the points are and what the touch points aren't, you know, I, I won't, and I'm not making fun of anyone, but I had a, a rep that happened to be at the facility the other day that I ran into and was like, Hey, can I schedule some time to come and talk to you in your office about such and such. And I said, you know, no, thanks. Well, no, no. I mean, we got to really, I, you do know about that. I'm like, look, I, I have no interest in that. I appreciate it. I appreciate you asking, but I don't have any interest in that. Knowing that to say, okay, great. And not push in those situations or uh, that it's okay to reach out to Dr. X, but not Dr. Y when it comes to, you know, different things. I think the, the really good reps have a handle on all of that um, and have a personality that can handle all of that aspect of it that can handle the, the helping in a bad situation can handle taking a little bit of heat, maybe when it isn't really entirely their fault. You, you know, you've been in the OR enough to know exactly what I mean there. I think that's what makes a good rep. And, and cause at the end of the day, which I saw a podcast the other day that you're not supposed to say at the end of the day, at the end of the day, overwhelming majority, when we're talking about hips and knees, overwhelming majority of the implant manufacturers have very, very similar products. 
And with exception of some bells and whistles that then boils down to the rep and the instruments, what helps your day go the most smoothly? What helps you get out of a problem when it's time to get out of a problem? Those are the ones that are going to, you know, the the reps that I want to have in my room. I love surgeons like you because us reps are eternally hopeful creatures. And I appreciate a surgeon who tells me, no, I have no interest in that. I deal with that much better than somebody who doesn't like conflict and will drag me along because I'm always holding out hope, right? Even though there is no hope, I just haven't been communicated that yet. So, well, Dr. Barron, I am so thankful uh, that you spent some time with us today. You used the word force of nature, and you're a force of nature. What you've accomplished over 23 years, and I know there's so much more to come. Just amazing work across the board, and, and thank you so much for sharing your story with my audience. It was very inspiring. Thanks for having me, and uh, I, you know, to your audience, uh, I, I really appreciate you having me. And this is a great podcast. And if you, if you, you obviously, if you're listening, go and tell some of your friends that uh, that this is worth listening to, and and that it's uh, it's not uh, somebody out there trying to sell you something. But uh, you know, particularly the stuff about Larry in the last couple podcasts has been wonderful. Um, and uh, you're doing great work. I appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you, Dr. Barron. Coming from you, that means a lot. And I really appreciate you taking time out to, to talk to my audience. Now, that was an amazing conversation and an amazing individual. Dr. Barron's impact on this industry and the community, both here and abroad, is just so inspirational. So much of what I see Dr. Barron doing is the right thing for the right reason, whether it's Opwalk, whether it's Pelotonia, E-bars, giving back to the community, on and on and on. That's the safe place on the matrix. But doing the wrong thing for the right reason is where the snipers can get us, so to speak. There's bumper stickers down here in Myrtle Beach that says, stop, look, motorcycles are everywhere. We need that same mindset to stop and look. Snipers are everywhere. And they usually catch us not for doing the wrong thing for the wrong reason, although that has caught some people, but the wrong thing for the right reason. It's so easy to miss that because sometimes all we see is the reasoning and we kind of miss the front end, which is what we're actually doing. And it's that doing that can result in pink slips, alienating HCPs, seeing that lovely turtle that we were so desperate to save turn into a buzzard buffet right in front of our eyes if we don't I could not resist. And with that, I bid you all a wonderful week. Again, a big thanks to Dr. Barron. Uh, Always thankful to have you in the audience. And let's all just stop, look, and most importantly this week, be safe.